Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge, and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I am Dermot White, President of the Compliance Institute, and it's a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Following the enactment of the Central Bank Individual Accountability Framework Bill, commonly known as IAF, on the 9th of March, the Central Bank launched a three-month consultation on key aspects of the implementation, including the publication of draft regulations and guidance. These seek to provide clarity in terms of the Central Bank's expectations for the implementation of the aspects of the framework, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, the Conduct Standards, and certain aspects of enhancements to the existing fitness and probity regime. Compliance Institute welcomes the publication of the consultation paper on IAF and was provided with the opportunity to respond on behalf and in conjunction with its members to the questions set out in the consultation paper. On today's podcast, we will be discussing IAF in general terms, while also touching on some of the key aspects of the Compliance Institute's response to the consultation paper. I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Garrity, who's a member of the Compliance Institute's IAF and Pensions Working Group, and Louise Hogan, a member of the Compliance Institute IAF and FinTech and Payments Working Groups, for a discussion on the Individual Accountability Framework and the Compliance Institute's response to the consultation. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Louise and Sarah, and thank you for talking to us today. To kick off, what do you believe are the benefits of IAF? And I might go to Louise first for that question, if that's okay. Yeah, I suppose, firstly, on the consumer protection side, it really encourages a benchmark for goods general conduct standards across firms. And we'll be talking about things today like promoting good culture through those conduct standards. On the consumer protection side, I suppose it does make it easier for the central bank to engage in enforcement investigations against individuals and regulated financial service providers, just so that they can be held accountable for things that are not good behavior in the industry. Thanks, Louise. What do you think, sir? Thanks for having me today. Um, From my perspective, I think that it gives the individuals who are holding those functions um, clear and proper kind of guidance of what they're responsible for. So it empowers them in their role to understand where their responsibilities lie and where what it is that they're responsible on a day to day basis for. Thank you. I think those are both very, very interesting views. Uh, and I, I definitely um, do recognize the, the same points that you're highlighting. I think for me, it brings accountability. While the empowerment piece comes in, it's accountability and ownership for uh, driving the business, being responsible for the activities within their oversight and ensuring that the right culture is driven. 
and and also the, the back end, as Louise already touched on, is that deterrent, the, the personal liability that comes with it, were you to be a bad actor. So ultimately, driving the right behaviors, the right accountability, and uh, setting the right agenda within the organizations. Jeremy, it's probably, I suppose, another aspect of this is just driving positive cultural change and that's something that I suppose they're trying to see will they deliver it from this regime so that the IAF is going to be complementing and really bolstering the fitness and probity regime um, which kind of covers the, just the point that you talked about there but I think it's probably more of a holistic approach and that the supervisory approach is going to change as well to really embed the central bank's assessment of a firm's culture and behaviour. But I, I don't know if either of you kind of agree that, you know, that it is going to drive that cultural change. I think when you look back at the financial crisis and things that have happened and been in the news since the financial crisis, that the implementation of the IAF will drive that cultural change and it will make people more aware of what it is that they're responsible for and the fact that they can be held individually accountable for it. Hopefully it will act as a deterrent to what we have seen in the news historically. And I think that it's welcome now on a go forward basis that people can be held individually accountable and it can build back that trust from the general public in the financial industry, which has been eroded over time, I would say. I would tend to agree. I would hope that the IAF would would deliver positive cultural change. As Sarah's kind of touched on financial crisis, we've seen challenges. We've seen it across a range of different sectors where the outcomes for the consumer hasn't always been um, to the to the front end of the agenda. I think that the positives that come with it, it's it's a kind of clear, accountable structure at the top end of the organization, at board level, the senior executive team. I do think with it, it's going to it is going to have to be supported across the business as a whole, right? The individuals at the top end can't do that alone. Yes, the ones, they are on the hook when they're occupying those um, PCF functions with the prescribed responsibilities. But with, with any kind of cultural change, it does need to cascade down through the organization. You need to empower individuals to speak up and, and flag issues as they see them. And that's probably the biggest piece for me when I look at it is if you're a PCF, your responsibility doesn't just sit within your own cohort. You're responsible for the firm. So if you're aware of something that isn't, um, shall we say, being performed or people acting in a regulatory compliant fashion, it, it isn't good enough anymore to sit back and, and do nothing. We, we have to have a voice. Those parties occupying those roles have to, to stand up and, and be heard and uh, flag those issues to ensure that the the behavior is, is adjusted and the, the right and appropriate arrangements are embedded within the organization. So it's it's all those, it's 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 not just a one size fits all. There's lots of different pieces that will drive the positive cultural change. But I think the IAF with the conduct standards is is definitely a, a big step forward and, and it should be welcomed across the industry, I think. So what, what do we think maybe are the kind of steps that firms should be taking now in terms of getting ready and, and trying to ensure this is effectively embedded within our organizations as an industry? Maybe I'll, I'll take that one first. I, I suppose at the outset, 
it's to not underestimate this. Like it does really need a full implementation plan that's going to allow you to assess your resources, the timing, the stakeholder requirements that you need, and then kind of socializing those changes, getting clarity on your reporting lines and leaving room for, I suppose, a bit of debate there um, in making sure that everybody knows what their responsibilities are kind of agrees to them and that they are consistent across things that they might have been informed in their employment contract or say in terms of reference of different committees that they're sitting on. Yeah, I agree, Louise. I think it's very important that you have a cross company approach to this. I don't think it should sit with one individual section of the company, i.e. compliance officers. I think compliance officers obviously have the obligation and the responsibility to interpret the guidelines and interpret the regs, the draft regs as they sit right now, and to inform the business on what is required. But I do think that it needs buy-in from HR, COSEC, um, senior management sponsorship of this, because as we talked about a, a few moments ago, cultural change is part of this. And oh, we always talk about the tone from the top as compliance officers. So that is required from to have senior management buy-in to understand who's in scope and who's out of scope. So kind of refining, if you take your your registers as they are for fitness and probity at the moment for your CFs, making sure that they're actually all proper CFs and, and they're defined correctly. I think that's a very important point um, and to, to make sure that those individuals who are in those CF roles, be they junior CFs or more kind of senior CFs that have been in the industry for years, that they understand the impact of this for them and that they are brought along that journey because I do think that it is a change for them from signing and fitness and probably declaration on an annual basis to signing something that says that they're complying with conduct standards so bringing them from an early stage along that journey is very important and then for the PCFs again bringing them along that journey and making sure that they're comfortable that with their inherent responsibilities but also with the prescribed responsibilities that have signed to them so I think there's a very important discussion to be had at an individual level with those PCFs and in terms of making sure having individualized training for those cohorts of individuals is very important also. So there's an awful lot of steps that need to happen before we even get to the implementation date of the 31st of December for the first part of it. As Louise said, don't underestimate the work that has to be done. Again, I'd like to kind of, I suppose, echo both of your comments. I don't see it as solely a compliance responsibility. I think first and foremost, it's an organizational responsibility, which needs sponsorship at the highest levels. To the point is, I don't think it can be looked on an individual basis alone. Individual basis, yes, will need to be considered because everybody will need to understand what their statements or responsibilities are. As Sarah's pointed out, the prescribed responsibilities, the inherent responsibilities, so the individuals that occupy those roles will need to feed into that process and will need to clearly understand what is involved in it. I think once, once that, that step is completed, there's a further step, though, which is bringing the collective together, understanding at an organization level how it knits, so to speak, in terms of where the handoffs are, where are the lines, are there crossovers in terms of where, you know, one PCF function does place a degree of reliance. Uh, on another 
or where there is kind of, you know, you might have matrix management as well in it. So I think the, the key, the piece that I'm getting at there is the statement responsibilities, I guess, mapping, the clarity of what's within the party's ownership and control, the delegation piece where it's it's getting down through that organization and, and how parties get that reliance and comfort in terms of their scope of their responsibility. Because it can vary organization to organization, but certain organizations in our industry are, um, shall we say, very significant in scale with significant numbers of employees. And it's, it's what is your chain that allows you to exercise that oversight. Um, so again, to, to echo both Sarah and Louise's points, a significant workload is required and it definitely shouldn't be underestimated. And if there are any firms that haven't begun that exercise, it really does need to to be hitting into gear now to to drive it into force and and ready to comply uh, with the the deadlines that have been mentioned uh, by the CBI. I might take just a follow on from that, and and again uh, back to maybe I'll go to Sarah this time. What what challenges do you anticipate as part of embedding this, and what are the challenges that come with the IAF implementation? So one of the the challenges that I mentioned it before is the level of understanding that the CFs would have of what their roles and responsibilities are and just to make sure that they're fully informed of what changes this might bring for them. Another challenge that I see perhaps is in the mapping of the prescribed responsibilities for um, individual PCFs. I know that we're all aware that the central bank, when whenever you're going for PCF approval, one of the biggest things is time commitment and, and other responsibilities that individuals have. So when we're mapping out the prescribed responsibilities for individuals, it's looking at those ones that have been set out by the central bank in, in the uh, draft guidelines and making sure that they don't all sit with one person. And having done it for my firm, it seems that there are multiple responsibilities that sit with one individual, which can kind of be counterproductive to what is trying to be achieved. So I think that that's a challenge that that may face firms. Louise, anything you'd like to add? Well, I suppose just based on feedback that that we're getting from our members there's there's a couple of issues I suppose around the timing of the regime given that it's a big enough project but particularly around the sequencing of the proposed implementation so just to give you a practical example of this PCF holders and those holding CF1 roles will be required from 31st of December this year to take reasonable steps to ensure additional conduct standards are met. So that's things like ensuring the area of business for which they're responsible for is controlled effectively. However, then you have the obligation of an in-scope SEER firm to prepare statements of responsibilities, which doesn't kick in until the 1st of July 2024. So effectively, I suppose you have PCF holders taking reasonable steps in relation to responsibilities that may not be fully documented by the firm. So um, I suppose it's pity there's not a little bit more known about the expectations of the central bank and how these are meant to dovetail against each other to, I suppose, stop putting that people might come under pressure to implement SEER a little bit early just to make sure these two go together properly. Thank you. 
I, I just like to add, I think the, the prescribed responsibilities um, is a particularly key one in terms of how it maps into existing PCFs. Right? I, I do think that some of the CEOs may become kind of overloaded with the prescribed responsibilities within their organizations and whether that could detract from the quality of delivery. Look, it, it remains to be seen. But again, I think what, what we're observing via the feedback we're getting from um, our membership is that you could end up with kind of six to seven, maybe even more prescribed responsibilities that map into, into the CEO directly. And, and it does raise some further questions, I think, organizationally, is, is that the right approach that the CBI are looking for or the central bank firm are looking for? Or is it that it's going to result in further pre-approval control functions being created that have those um, prescribed responsibilities mapped to. But again, I, th- I think there's, there's, there's more to come on that one. As, as both Sarah and Louisa, I guess, touched on, the educational piece is absolutely critical to this. Um, and again, when I look at it, I divide it into two segments. You've got the senior executive team that should be um, very familiar with the responsibilities that come from occupying these pre-approval control function roles under the fitness and probity regime. But then I see there's a significant lift of the bar when it comes to the the controlled functions. A lot of our organizations would have, shall we say, significant numbers of people mapped to these control functions. And the rules and guidance in their current guise appear to suggest that the reasonable steps um, would apply to those control functions. Now, Again, this is this is my personal perspective, and you know, in the capacity as compliance institute president. But when I look at it, I see that as a significant bar lift in terms of the administrative burden that comes with that. In terms of, I guess, I see a responsibility for demonstrable evidence, so clarity, documentation that support those reasonable steps. It's definitely a significant lift from you know the ethical behavior and moral behavior. And, you know, and asking ourselves the question, do the actions that we take stand the test of time? And so I I would say a significant change there, but I I couldn't possibly underestimate the administrative burden that would come with that. So potentially that's one to to consider in terms of whether that's the intention of the reasonable steps or or is it that, you know, you're not going to have the same level of documented requirements, I guess, that would come with that. Um, so I think I think that that's that'll be an interesting one to see how it plays out. As I touched on earlier, then in terms of the kind of cross coverage between various roles and what's within one's responsibility and what isn't, um, we definitely got some feedback uh, for those parties occupying the PCF fifty two role. So your your AML anti money laundering counter terrorist financing adds the inherent responsibility focused on management of the firm's anti money laundering. Uh, function. And I think the, the, the feedback that we're getting there is AML is not just run by the anti-money laundering individual and function. It's something that has to be embedded fully across an organization. And that includes onboarding teams. Those are the parties that generally would complete the, the customer due diligence check, the enhanced due diligence checks as you're onboarding the client. And a lot of those don't directly report into, you know, your head of anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. So the pieces there is the clarity as to what the expectations are, what is within the, the scope of the role and responsibility of the individuals that are there. But look, again, I think a lot of this will play its way out over time. But 
I think it's it's key to understand the organizations that these rules are going to apply to from a regulatory size. It, it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and, and it's important that you're going to get variant uh, implementation approaches across uh, different entities. So on that then, taking your last point in relation to the implementation and the operation of the IAF across industries, do you think the IAF, the way it's articulated right now, is applied as a standard across all of the industries or do you think that there's some industries or some sectors that have been missed? I, I think that you're going to have uh, differing approaches to implementation based on the product offerings that they'll have within scope. I think it'll it'll largely depend on the scale of the operations the entities have. So there, there was a, another point that was fed back from our members around material business lines. There wasn't, a, shall we say, there is a PCF function associated that ahead of a material business line. I think there's a lot of ambiguity or lack of understanding in the industry as to what that actually means. Some of the feedback we're getting um, was that, does that bring in your global regional oversight of a material product line or business line? Or is it intended to mean the, the head of a material business line for the reasons of you know revenue, client numbers, et cetera, within the organization itself? But to, to, to go back to your question, I think you're going to get varying approaches to implementation. That, uh, I suppose, again, it'll be interesting to see, and it'll probably prove out through you know, the follow-ups to this in the CBI, because I, I, I fully expect that they're going to come in at some point in time, do tests of the, the obligations, the implementation, checks of the project, and then potentially come out with some form of DRCO or industry letter that highlights the good practices and then for, for firms to consider. So... I think this is going to be around for a while. We will see varying practices across different industries. I think the the other piece I would say, again, IAF applies to a set cohort. The conduct standards applies to a larger cohort. So you're going to have, a, shall we say, a divergence in terms of understanding, in terms of what is required and differing approaches because some are feeling, um, shall we say, the workload that's required from an IAF perspective and they'll have that familiarity, they'll have been working through it. The conduct standards then will apply, as I said, to a, a more broader audience who may not have been on the journey for as long or they may be picking up a later date. So to your point, yes, is the answer to the question, Sarah, that I think there will be varying approaches across the different sectors. Is it ever going to be a one-size-fits-all approach? I don't think so. There will be varying degrees of interpretation. But I would think that through, as I said, the thematic inspection series that may follow or other reviews, there will be further clarity of expectations over time. And again, that'll be a number of years, but I think the best practices will be highlighted and then we'll see some further work in terms of how those best practices get implemented across organizations. I think um, just to pick up another area where... Um, I suppose we need a little bit more clarity over responsibility is around outsourcing. Um, so maybe if we talk about that a little bit, I think the consultation is kind of clear that a PCF needs to be allocated to a PR 21. So someone who's monitoring the appropriateness and performance of the firm's outsourcing framework. And then equally the underlying activities, the subject of an individual PCF's role and responsibilities may be subject to or have interaction with an intergroup or third party outsourcing. And that PCF should 
presumably remain or keep oversight of that role. But I think the balance of roles and responsibilities in overseeing outsourcing is something that probably just needs to be really carefully allocated and documented as between that PCF that's allocated the pure 21 and the PCF whose roles and responsibilities are directly related to or impacted by the services being outsourced. And I suppose one area that we were getting feedback from our members on is just, I suppose, cautioning against, or I suppose we want to avoid role duplication around this and make sure that the outsourcing is done in the most efficient way as well. Just to add to your point, now, Louise, I, I do think outsourcing is a, is a huge area of regulatory focus. In terms of the oversight piece, and I think that that's the kind of key word I would say there, right, is oversight. Because my, my expectation would be is that the individuals that, shall we say, are effectively making the decision or the business case for the outsourcing, where they're actually moving the activity or service that they're responsible for performing to another location, that's where the duty of shall we say, ensuring it remains controlled, remains effective, and is managed appropriately to ensure they're compliant with their regulatory obligations. I I firmly see that that should remain within that area, whoever was responsible for it to start with. And I see the, the outsourcing oversight piece as that an oversight piece and holding the parties below to account. But again, that that's that's my humble opinion. So again, it comes into what is within one scope of what's you know, their responsibilities and what's in another's and how how those, as I said before, those knit and gel together to ensure we have uh, effectively operating regulated entities. Do we think that the introduction of the IAF and specifically SEER is actually going to be a barrier to employment for people or a barrier to hiring for companies? Because I do. Yeah, because I think... From the Compliance Institute member survey, which we discussed at last year's uh, annual conference, that was definitely uh, some of the feedback we're getting from the industry, that parties would seek to avoid the personal liability that would come with it. There was a fear around what taking that exposure on in terms of occupying those roles would bring. Um, So the the general feedback was yes, um, that the industry was fearful that you wouldn't be able to recruit people to those functions for fear of that liability and that exposure. But I think, and we had we had some interesting panelists actually who were uh, involved in the originating rollout in terms of the SMCR, the Senior Management Certification Regime in the UK. And at the time of the rollout of the equivalent there, they also had the same uh, feedback from the industry. There was a fear factor in terms of recruitment. But what they've advised, it, like over time, it, it hasn't proven out to be the case that they, they were saying there were still parties coming into the roles, still parties willing to occupy. Now, that isn't to say that people aren't going to take, you know, a range of steps to get themselves comfortable with it. But certainly, I think, yes, is the answer to, to Sarah's question, which is, is, the, is it going to have an impact in the industry in recruiting? I think the answer we've seen at an industry level to that is yes, but the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak, in terms of the future as to whether people will do it. And if we were to draw comparisons from the UK equivalent, it, it's proven out that, you know, in the end, when people get more accustomed to the requirements, they get a better degree of comfort. Yeah, I, I suppose in practical steps, what we're seeing is just senior managers trying to ensure that they are taking the 
practical steps to ensure that their responsibilities are realistic and it's not substance over form when determining who the responsible exec is going to be for any particular failure at the time. And I think one thing that has kind of focused the minds in some respect is a recent enforcement action around the UK senior manager conduct rules. And I suppose that was the first enforcement action in the UK against a senior manager for breach of their equivalent of the SEER regime, which is the senior management conduct rules. And I think what that really showed expectations around outsourcing arrangements in particular, and the kind of interrogation that you would need to be doing of management information you're given and what oversight really means. So there, there's a lot of practical lessons from that case that kind of have a read across to the Irish regime that PCFs should um, be familiarizing themselves with. So taking your point there, Louise, and I might, I might put a question to Sarah now. Sarah, if you're occupying one of these roles, what are, what's the advice that you might give? And we might go around the room on this one. What's the advice you might give to somebody that is either in um, an existing pre-approval control function role with the introduction of CRIF? What, what would you do? What steps would you take? What would you expect to see? From my perspective, I am a PCF holder. So what I would be hoping to see would be that I have clear clarity on exactly what is expected of me per the roles and responsibilities, obviously, that my contract is amended to reflect that those roles um, and responsibilities and that it's I could be individually accountable for that to understand where the decision making is expected of me and then of who I can delegate that decision making to and what oversight I'm required to have of them. And just in general terms, from a company perspective, understanding where decisions are made in general and what the reliances are on different committees. So yeah, just, just to understand where and what protections I have as an employee of the company from a a liability perspective, am I covered in under the current insurance for, of the company or is it required that, that that's extended so that's what I would like to see I suppose the arrangements around how you would delegate Sarah as well would be important just to make yeah. sure that they're they're documented and that you know that you've got a, a responsible person and you're going to be able to get that adequate management information as well passed up to you yeah and and, and to take that information point uh, I think it's one, the information that's available to you while you're employed by that organization, right? And and to ensure you can meet your responsibilities, you need to be getting it from whatever forum you need to get it from. But secondly, I guess, is if you are to leave an organization, because, you know, the, there is the degree of loyalty. Some people will stay with organizations for, for many, many, many years. But, you know, if other opportunities open up, people may move. And the piece there is, if something was to arise at a later stage um, for that organization and you were involved as one of those senior managers, what access do you have to the information in the event you're named to defend your position? Because the records are the records of the entity. Um, and, and this very much did come up on, uh, again, our conference. There was a good 
good question came up in that last year. And similarly, it was a question that was put to um, one of one of the, the regulators when we had the opportunity at a CPD event early last year as to what access would reasonably be available to a former employee of an organization in terms of, you know, allowing them to recollect the, the specific event that would occur. And in the event that they were, shall we say, as part of their reasonable steps, required to make a decision. What, what access do they have after the fact, once they've left an organization, to be able to go back to their original records? Now, I have heard some views in terms of broader industry that obviously you can't have specific records, but you can have contemporaneous records, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of just pointing to a specific date where you may have made a, a, a particular decision. Um, so that in the event you you have some form of recollection yourself, but it, it shouldn't be business specific. But that that's something I think that does need to play its way out. Additionally, then I just want to go back to one point that Sarah mentioned in terms of committees, in terms of what your responsibilities are. I do find just at an industry, sometimes this gets lost. Like everybody knows what their prescribed responsibilities are, right? In terms of their specific function, their specific role. But if you're a committee member, your responsibility is much broader than just your specific prescribed responsibilities for your role. You're a member of that committee. You have a responsibility to challenge on any of the information that comes across. If, if you want more information, you have a responsibility to challenge on that. So to that point, if the information has been shared with you, in my personal opinion, you're, you're deemed to have read it if you've got it. So you need to have read it. You need to have understood it. You need to have challenged on it. To, to get you comfortable with that. So in terms of that committee piece, it's it's broader than just you bringing your, I don't know, your AML hat, your client asset hat, your uh, compliance hat to it. It's looking at organizationally within that particular committee structure. And it, this is how I feel about it. Uh, I'm interested in, in Sarah and Louise's views. Would you feel similar or share similar views that when you're a member of a committee, you are part of that collective decision-making structure so you need to be comfortable with where you land and you need to be able to have that demonstrable evidence of that challenge yeah I think challenge is probably the key part about it and what's clear from the regime and I suppose that the central bank's expectations over the past couple of years on on culture and around fitness and probity is that it's not enough to have the responsibility. What's really important is that you have that element of scrutiny and that you're effectively challenging decisions that are being made. I agree. I think that it is it is important that that is evidenced. But I would challenge that or I would query whether we think that or on your personal opinions on this um, as role holders or consultants, that whether you think that this is going to create additional work for individuals who are in those roles, or whether it will create more, for want of a better phrase, talking for the sake of talking at these committees where they are, so it is minuted that there was a challenge, whether it be effective or not. I suppose at the start of these regimes, um, as Dermot was saying with the UK, there always is a tendency just to kind of make sure that you are seen to be doing what you're meant to be doing rather than just doing it in the course of the business. And I think what the central bank will really be focusing on is the, I suppose, the substance over the form. 
it shouldn't be that it's that it's adding work here. It should just be that you have good governance in the business and you are continuing to do that, but it's now being documented so that responsibilities are known and that there is accountability. Yeah, so we'll see what happens when when it's introduced. Maybe at the start, that's what will happen. But as people get more comfortable with it, hopefully it won't. Yeah, and, and to your point, and I, I think you're 100% right to ask the question. I, I don't think it should be challenged for the sake of challenge sake. It should be substantive. It should add value to the collective and to the organization. But again, to Louise's point, I think at the start, we may see degree of it just to ensure that it's visible that individuals are participating but I think over time it'll it'll find you know it'll it'll balance itself out but I think I think it's a exceptionally good point the bigger piece that I see though is like and again it depends on which organization you're in right the size of decks that are going into various committee forums and board forums now, and again, maybe we don't want to touch this topic right but the size of those which sometimes can go into the hundreds right? What is the capacity of an individual to absorb, read, understand all that information in the period of time when they get the deck, when they have the opportunity to review it, you know, and and do the meetings provide for sufficient time to to allow for those discussions over those matters? And and again, reminding that that's operating in, shall we say, what I assume everybody's facing a post kind of COVID society where there's, shall we say, a significant number of uh, virtual calls every day, right? So the time capacity to absorb all the information in the forums, any views? I think when you think about good management information and passing those things up there, sometimes is a tendency just to put everything in for you know, take a conservative approach and ensure that um, you're covering everything off. But I think the more important question is, is it useful? And is there is there a use to passing it up? And is this going to, um, I suppose, assist the decision that's going to be made? And is it something that if, if you hadn't shared it, the person making the decision would have liked to know that information? Yeah, look, I think that the size of packs at, at any committee level um where you have to where you have to give papers in advance has always been a bugbear and is always I think for every um for every board there is comments made about the size of the packs and to Louise's point everything does have to be and I agree everything has to be effective and important and and it's what they need to see but I do think that there is a risk that the packs may just stay the same um, and may just be as voluminous as as they have been in order to. And I think that perhaps it might be the case that INEDs and NEDs want it that way if they are as they're captured by IAF and SEER. And I do think that it is a challenge, though, to assimilate the information if they're given a pack that's hundreds of pages long. How effective is that? How effective is it to to read that and then to provide that challenge? Um, But I don't think that with the introduction of the IAF, that's new. I think that that's always existed. Where I would see it being an issue is where you have an individual who is a PCF who has multiple prescribed responsibilities assigned to them and that's creating more of a risk where the expectation is per the prescribed responsibilities that they're responsible for the oversight of multiple different areas of the business where these decisions may have to happen. So I think that that's probably more of the 
issue and where the risk lies. I don't think that board papers increasing in size or committee papers increasing in size. I think that that's always existed. Um, it's just about refinement over time, which is a constant conversation that happens with the COSEC and whoever the committee secretary is. Should it change, though, with like with the, the introduction of these prescribed accountable you know, personally liable individuals that are being empowered to do these roles with prescribed responsibilities that the regulator said it at a, at a board committee level, those parties are supposed to own. Surely it should have some form of dynamic change that, yes, there's obviously obligations to ensure adequate information comes to those forums. But if those parties are on the hook, surely they should be bringing the key messages to ensure that there isn't that information overload and the accountability embeds where, where it should with the individuals that are occupying these roles. Any thoughts? Yeah, I do think there is an opportunity for, for uh, refinement of the, of the information that's coming to them. I do think that with the described responsibilities, there is an opportunity to, and with under SEER, if you have your management responsibility maps and you're talking about the business as a whole and looking where key decisions are made, it gives an opportunity to refine the terms of reference of those committees and what needs to go to them and what needs to be presented. So yeah, I would agree. It probably is an opportunity for refinement of papers and of information. So that's another positive coming out of IAF and SEER, right? Just, just a different twist and a different take. You heard it here today, folks, right? So organizations can have a look at that and see how they can refine down the voluminous uh, papers that go to the various forums. But look, to, to conclude, um, what, what do you think are the kind of, I suppose, the, the biggest benefits of, the, of this regime, both to the industry, to the customer, to the regulator, whatever angle you want to come at it? What, what do you think are the biggest benefits? I think it, it's probably... You know, we've talked about what a big project it is and, you know, the timing to get that project done. But I think it's probably an opportunity to think about the governance in your own firm and making sure that that is very well thought out so that if you do have a central bank inspection, I suppose, you know where you are with your various responsibilities and you know that you've got the reporting lines are definitely not outdated and they're very clear. And then I suppose the deterrent point on the consumer side is very important. Sarah? Yeah, I just think it's, I think that it's, it's a positive step forward um, for the industry. I do think that the, if it is implemented right in firms and it is overseen correctly by our regulator and, and there is that open discussion between the industry and the regulator on this topic, it can be seen as a very positive thing from a public perception as well, that we are trying to make positive strides in the industry to give people the confidence back. Yeah, and I, I'd just like to echo your comments. I, I think it, it, it should, or I would hope, it, it gives the confidence back in the financial service sector. I, I still don't see it as you know the, the ultimate solution. I think the, the Consumer Protection Code, the, the central bank are working on that review. I think that's particularly key. Um, we need to have a look at the educational pieces, both internally in our organizations for some of these obligations, but educational piece generally, more generally for financial services industry in the context of the consumer of the products. Do they understand the, the risks and the exposures that they're um, getting into when they're, when they're going into products? And I, actually, I just want to mention there briefly is... 
I saw something quite refreshing um, lately with, uh, I think Donegal Callaghan came out, uh, you know, former Irish and Munster Rugby International, with his lack of understanding of the financial products. So again, he was facing off against a finance service entity, which, to be honest, probably isn't entirely blameless. And I think where this IAFNC regime would definitely uh, have strengthened and, and supported that. And I, I think... The CBI were definitely very active in that space, so kudos on that. But what what I will do this regime is bring that accountability to those individuals that are in those to act in appropriate fashion. But as I said, going back to it, what I found refreshing is he acknowledged his own lack of understanding of the financial service product. So I think there's the educational piece for the consumer of the products to ensure they know what they're getting into. But it is also absolutely critical that the financial service sectors that we operate in where we understand the products, the design, the target market, et cetera, that we have that accountability and we have that duty of care to, to our clients. And that's why we as Compliance Institute exist today. And that's why our compliance membership exists today, which is to ensure that organizations operate in a compliant fashion for the benefit of the end consumer and drive the right standard. So again, through the Compliance Institute and through Sarah, Louise, and the broader industry. That's why, why we do this role, is to ensure that we give the broader country the confidence in the financial services sector, supporting the, the regulator in terms of its agenda. Thank you to Louise and Sarah for sharing your expertise in this topic. Thank you for listening to the Compliance File podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you found the podcast interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. Until the next episode, bye from me. Thanks, Chairman. Thanks, Chairman. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.